DTX Equals, where thought leaders in digital therapeutics put a stake in the ground on what makes DTX, DTX. With me today is Whitney Stewart, Director of Clinical Project Management at CureBase, one of the first CROs to really dedicate itself to tackling DTX and its specific challenges. Before that, she was at Science 37, and before that, spent five years at UCSF, which for us academic nerds is like the holy grail of real world, getting it done, clinical trial innovation. So quite a pedigree, if I do say so myself. Thank you so much for being here today, Whitney. Yeah, of course. Happy to be here and excited to talk about digital therapeutics. <laughs> awesome. So uh, before we get into DTX itself, tell me a little bit about you and specifically what's a formative event in your life or career that influenced your path into DTX? Yes. So I've been in clinical trial operations for about 10 years and actually been in decentralized trials for six and I worked in decentralized trials prior to the pandemic. And when the pandemic hit, that industry really took off. But I joined it because it was an innovative approach to clinical research uh, with patients at the center. And then when I joined CureBase uh, about a year and a half ago, it was the first time I actually learned about digital therapeutics and I really latched on. Uh, for me, it was the same innovation and patient centricity that really inspired me. Uh, that originally brought me to decentralized trials that was really present in digital therapeutics as well. And I see a lot of similarities and struggles that uh, are in both industries. And I actually think it's extremely opportune that these industries are like a really good fit for each other. And so it's kind of been like amplifying my uh, inspiration to be a part of both of them. When I came to CureBase, I was given the opportunity to really engage with the, the community. So, you know, I've been on the operations team for a number of uh, digital therapeutic companies, and then I've attended conferences and interacted directly with people in the industry. And I've also worked with the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. So I'd say I'm still new and I'm still learning, but I, I really enjoyed and embraced like understanding the whole journey of these companies, um, really to do a better part in my, my small role on their journey. So we've been talking a bit about you know, DTX companies, but um, in your mind, DTX equals what? Uh, what's kind of the most defining issue in DTX today? Yeah, so I I think, you know, I always start with like the, the definition of a digital therapeutics, and I know you know what that is, um, uh, but really like a software-based uh, modality for delivering evidence-based treatment. Uh, and I think you can kind of break down the challenges and struggles into three categories. And so I see that as regulatory and really getting FDA approval. I see reimbursement and getting a way to get covered by health insurance companies. And that's really required from a business perspective and an access perspective, and then really acceptance. And that's by both clinicians and patients. And that really leads to adoption, right? So. I think we're all aligned in an industry that there's been a lot of successes in the regulatory bucket. So a number of products have been cleared or approved. And although there's challenges with the pathways and they could be better defined for this type of product, I think there's a clear way to set up your regulatory strategy. And the FDA has been a really engaged partner to help companies get across that barrier. So. For the other buckets, reimbursement and acceptance, I see them really as being linked. 
and I see really the acceptance by clinicians and acceptance into clinical workflows as the priority that will really ultimately help with the reimbursement issue. So tell me a little bit about how you're seeing those problems, because I think, you know, uh, much of the field would agree with what you just highlighted. I think that, you know, when we um, when we get together at these DTX um, conference series events, uh, we hear about these things and are are tracking the field's progress. But Mm -hmm. what kind of unique perspectives are you having as somebody from the clinical trial side into these problems? Yeah, so, I mean, I would say most of my my energy is really focused on the regulatory pathway component as like what I do directly feeds into that. Uh, And so it's really kind of uh, learning about the clinical practice acceptance and and the reimbursement pathways has been a big kind of focus of mine to just understand the, the, the path forward overall. And I think as we interact with investigators through clinical trials, uh, you you know, you have conversations with them about, you know, some of these issues and what it could mean, but you're also engaging with the people that are really interested in digital therapeutics and kind of embracing that industry. So, you know, I think I learn what other people experience and, um, and that's really what, what my perspective is. So I know that you mentioned that um, in your mind, the regulatory of these three sort of pillar areas, um, that the, the regulatory side is where DTX has had the most wins. Um, and it's also where you're working the most. Um, so I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. And I know you can't talk about any particular people or anything like that, but just bird's eye view. Um, what do you feel is still needs to be done on the regulatory side, right? The regulatory landscape is so different from how it was even a year ago um, for digital therapeutics. There are so many companies in the same disease area that I've met, right, that are all kind of going for similar things. And it used to be that they were just like four, right? So um, obviously there's a lot more going on um, <laughs> and a, just a lot more general traffic towards FDA. So the challenge used to be like, can people get clearance? And I think the challenges have become more fine-grained than that, but I'm curious what you see as the um, sort of themes that seem to still be uh, challenges on in that regulatory side. Yeah, so I obviously am involved in like clinical evidence generation. And so I still think that the exact evidence that you need to get approval is a little unclear for people. Uh, I think you can learn a lot of lessons from people that have gotten approval. And so that kind of, I think, would be the trend that people are kind of you know, the more evidence, the better, but you you obviously don't want to go too far above and beyond because clinical trials are very expensive. Uh, And, and I think because a lot of companies have gone through these pathways, it's, it's easier uh, to kind of model after their approaches. And like I said, learn lessons from people that have done it and really the engaging with the FDA ahead of time, doing like those pre-submissions and those types of discussions, I think has been really key. And there's a lot of questions about your specific protocol and the evidence you're, you are trying to collect for your specific claims. So it is still pretty nuanced. Um, there's no general strategy. So really engaging the FDA has been a, a good idea for a number of companies I've worked with and really kind of had them pivot right before executing on those those pivotal trials for these submissions. Right. So like, I think if I'm summarizing what you're saying correctly, it's like 
um, it costs a whole lot to do a study. So you want to feel relatively confident going in, but there are also places where innovation makes sense. And so you're kind of like looking at what other companies that have do are doing and thinking like, well, do I need to do that? Um, and, and that's a really interesting one for me, I think, because there are some cases where something made it through regulatory approval, but we know that there's room for error, right? It doesn't have to be a thousand percent perfect for something to get approval. There could be one or two things FDA looks at. It's like, well, I would have done that differently, but it's still pretty good. Want to get it to patients. Let's push it through. So like being able to look at what previous companies have done, but understanding that anything you're looking at could be that tiny gr group of things that kind of got through in spite of itself, right? Um, that's an interesting one, right? So like talking to FDA can help to bridge that gap. But, um, you know, how, how do you think about that, right? So when you're recommending clinical trial designs, is it primarily, um, you know, your view that, you know, um, the that emulating um, what previous companies have done and then talking to FDA about it? Like, is that kind of the strategy that you uh, you see people doing? Yes, that's what I've seen. And, and honestly, as, as a company and being involved in the actual like trial execution, there's a lot of conversations that happen before they even come to me and I even get involved in, in their process. Uh, but I, I, like I said, I have been involved in like kind of last minute changes to a protocol that kind of derail the trial a bit just due to FDA feedback and engaging with them. And, and I think obviously as FDA are the gatekeepers, you you want to listen to them as much as possible. And so, you know, engaging them early on and frequently is is the best route, in my opinion. So um, I've heard uh, representatives of the FDA say uh, in presentations and so on that sometimes they don't know what they want. So, you know, you can come to them and ask, but they might not know. And they're not going to say that in the meeting either. They're not going to be like, guys, we're not, we're just not sure. Right. So like, there's this kind of um, <laughs> awkward thing where you're trying to, you're trying to balance giving them what they want, assuming they know what that is, but also advising them in the event that they don't know what they want. So um, have, have you had to balance that or how do you think about that? Uh, yeah. So I, 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 at DTX West, actually, last week, I talked to the FDA and just kind of asked them some questions. And you're you're exactly right that they're like, well, it depends. Or, uh, you know, I don't know. I can't give you kind of a blanket statement there. And a lot of these companies, they have the ex clinical experience on their teams that are helping, you know, write these protocols and, and define the outcomes and how to get there. And a lot of it's based in, in kind of the rigor of pharmaceutical studies and and what you do on kind of those really high caliber studies that that that's required for that kind of product and and that's the best approach i mean that's the best attempt you can do and if they don't know i mean that's unfortunate i guess and hopefully it won't be your your, your downfall when you go for a submission uh, and and yeah like you said lee they're learning too it's a new industry and you have to you know provide you know the ultimate ultimately provide the evidence that shows like this is why this is sufficient yeah you know that reminds me of another interesting thing i heard at dtx west which was this idea that in some cases um you know, the regulations are what they are and FDA has to operate within the regulations that exist. And so sometimes 
we get this experience of being, you know, a round peg trying to fit into a square hole because that's the regulation, right? So like, uh, that's an interesting thing because nobody's pointing out like, here are my constraints. It would be nice if they could. Um, but, you know, there are there are sort of these underlying factors when you have a conversation. Well, so what, what can they legally preside over? Um, but then another one you just brought up is... Um, precedent outside of digital therapeutics. So, you know, are there, uh, you know, examples from medical device or drug where um, drawing on what they have done either can be a useful framework or could be totally overkill for what we're trying to do, depending, right? Because sometimes these studies are built, they're built towards CEDARS requirements and not CDRH's requirements. And so um, you kind of see sometimes like pulling from these different areas as examples and being like, is this relevant? And maybe it's not, right? But like, it's coming from FDA. So we panic and go, oh my God, FDA says I got to do this thing. Right. So <laughs> to what extent do you see um, examples from outside digital therapeutics used as precedent, right? We hear a lot about like, well, pairs are predicate, right? It's like, you know, these things within digital therapeutics, but um, products that aren't in digital therapeutics being drawn on as a useful, uh, a useful precedent. Yeah, that, that is a really good point. And I can't say that I have a specific example, but I just know that in, in general, these protocols, uh, you know, kind of have outcomes built into them that are typically found in, in, in pharmaceuticals and, and they're t trying to meet that level of evidence, you know, ha having these products seem like drug-like evidence, right, for to show their efficacy. And that is kind of a theme that I've heard as well, just like raising the bar of the evidence so that there's really no question that this is effective, uh, that this is safe. And, you know, we have met this this bar up here fr from outside of medical devices uh, and outside of other digital therapeutic examples. So, like, really can't question whether whether it's sufficient evidence because, I mean, it is, in my opinion. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I, I would say I've seen that a lot, particularly around endpoints. Like when you're sort of thinking about a disease area and mm -hmm. what types of endpoints are appropriate, it does not matter what you were testing, right? The the outcomes uh, may be quite similar, and uh, so that's a really obvious place to kind of pull. Well, you know, somebody else did that argument. Let's just uh, let's use the benefits of, of their labor um, as, a, as a precedent. The last thing I'll say that's interesting um, before we go on to our final question um, is, you know, thinking about using endpoints as a kind of a really uh, a great a good thing to draw precedent from drug studies. Uh, one really, uh, I think, obvious place where precedent to medical device studies doesn't seem to be happening is with the requirement of a pivotal trial, right? So it, you, you could see many cases in medical device where no pivotal trial trial is needed because you're doing a 510k and the predicate has already proven, you know, safety and efficacy. So you're limited in what you have to show. Um, we don't see that with things trying to use pair for a 510k, right? Cognitive therapy is not a thing that has proven safety and efficacy yet. Um, do you think that there's a path to that? Or do you see any like world where DTX will someday be able to do a 510k and not do a pivotal? Or does it really seem like it's a pivotal in every case at this point? That's a really good question. Uh, and I I kind of see it as being an important part of digital therapeutics and having those like evidence-based claims that you need to do these, these studies to show that. And I know obviously throughout the development phase, people are doing all types of studies. Sometimes it's even kind of just built into your mechanism of action that those studies have been done for years and years outside of digital therapeutics. But I think for 
you know, to lead to that acceptance, I mean, approval, clearance, one thing, but even lead to acceptance by clinicians and patients uh, that you, and because these products are so unique, right? And they're, it's, it's, I mean, that's the whole thing. Digital therapeutics are unique, but in, on an individual level and what they're doing to kind of get to those those outcomes, I, I think it's kind of a necessary part. I hate to say it, but uh, that's what I that's what I think. Well, yeah, it's like I was thinking about this because I, I made a table at one point of the um, FDA cleared digital therapeutics that are out there. And like, like two of them had overlapping mechanisms of that. Like none of them, there's just... They're so different. So, and, and then whatever you're doing, even if you use that thing as a predicate, it may only be 20% the same. So it's not like, like I've got a TENS right. unit and now I'm going to make another TENS unit. You know, I, I mean, they're just, um, you know, it's it's not as simple necessarily as using the same hardware um, because of that. So yeah, I, I see right. what you're saying. It's like really it could, in the distance perhaps, but because they're so unique, um, there's too much to, to reprove. Yeah, I'll definitely think about that. Sorry. <laughs> In your wildest dreams, what's something DTX will be able to do in the future that it can't do today? Yeah, and and thinking about this question, I, you know, one thing I like about the digital therapeutics industry and these products is I see, you know, the ability for them to treat patients like potentially limitless, like what types of patients, what types of diseases, what place in therapy, you know, they're really they're low risk, easy to access, they can potentially target undruggable pathways. And so it's really an amazing opportunity for human health. And one thing that I, I recognize is that these are businesses, they're, you know, they require investment, they require revenue to keep existing. And I really hate the idea that that products that could help patients could fail just because of like financial or business reasons. It's like a reality. Um, but I think once some of these challenges that we've been talking about, you know, the reimbursement and, and clinical practice acceptance, once those are kind of established and overcome and you start seeing these like true success stories of digital therapeutics or the, the, the blockbusters, what have you, um, I want to see more, right? I want to see pharma companies investing. I want to see the government investing. And I don't really want the business side of the table to limit the industry. So that's what I really see in the future, because I just think, like I said, limitless possibilities with these types of products. And, and I just hope there's no kind of reason that these good ideas can, can't make it to patients. It's such a good point, too, because I think, um, you know, many pharma companies are sort of looking at this opportunity and thinking, I don't know, like, do I want to do that? Is this good? I, I don't know. But if we can just get enough signal that all the pharma companies think they should, the innovation will be unbelievable, right? And so fast mm -hmm. because suddenly the money will be there. So, um, you know, scare scarcity is really uh, hurting progress. Everybody's just trying to keep afloat while these uh, while these barriers get overcome. So I think that's a, a really good point. You know, you see some pharma companies more than others um, really just taking a risk, but others thinking like they took a risk and then stepped back waiting to hear hear whether this is going to work out. Um, and there'll be some point where people feel more confident that it's going to work out. And when when the money really comes through, um, th that should be really interesting. Uh, more risk taking too, more willingness to try trial designs others have not tried or, you know, being a bit more aggressive. Um, so yeah, the, co the cost of failure can get lower. Very cool. Well, we're yes. out of time. Thank you uh, so much for joining me, Whitney. Um, this is DTX Equals, and we'll see you next time. 